0: A a short, a short prayer from our friends in the uh, evangelical Anglican tradition. Father, what we know not, would you teach us? And what we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us for the sake of your son, our savior? The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's a joy to be here. It's really an honor to be with you all. I'm so thankful to our triune God for His clear work in and among uh, the churches here and, and this church in particular. So thankful for 10 years of faithful ministry. And I'm thankful for the name change. <laughs> Grace Evangelical is good. Grace Baptist is even better. <laughs> And I hope to show you with this last session why I say that, why I hope to give you some, some exegetically derived reasons why it's good to be a Baptist. Uh, Mark Dever, pastor, Baptist pastor in uh, D.C., tells the fictional story of the Baptist church that had a mouse problem. There they they were mice all over the place. They were, they were nests in the attic, kitchen cabinets, they were all over the place. And the deacons had tried to get rid of these mice. They tried everything they knew to do. But they were persistently present. And finally, one of the deacons came up with a solution. He proposed that they should baptize the mice. And they did, and they now only saw them two times a year. (laughs) Christmas and Easter. Baptist mice. Well, maybe in unhealthy Baptist churches, but not here. So I want to consider our corporate identity. As uh, as the church. We talk a lot about the church, rightfully so. We attend church services. We give to the church. Many leaders are consumed with church growth. But what is the church? We usually refer to the building, right? I'm going to church. But that's not quite right. Church is not a place but a people who gathers in a particular place. I try to teach my kids not to say we're going to church. It gets cumbersome at times. We're going to church. We don't go to church, son. We are the church. We are the eschatological, fully forgiven, spirit-filled community that meets at that building. Get it right. Just kidding. But words matter, right? The word church, ecclesia, it's found about 114 times in the New Testament. The vast majority, some 92 or 93 of the instances, refer to the local church. So the church at Corinth, the church at Philippi, the church at Rome. Jonathan Lehman defines a church as a group of Christians who jointly identify as followers of Jesus through regularly gathering in His name, preaching the gospel, and celebrating the ordinances. Well, how important should the church be in the life of the Christian? In short, very important. In fact, central to our identity as we are members of a local church. Yes, universal by conversion, and then quickly, a local church. It's important. We're talking about the bride of Christ, the group of people that Jesus shed his blood to obtain. The biblical emphasis, again, is not so much on Jesus dying for the isolated individuals. No, the biblical emphasis on Jesus shedding his blood to purchase a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So there's a a tight connection between Jesus and the church, which is why I'm very concerned to find people who say I'm a Christian, but I'm not part of a local church. It's a head-body connection, right? Organic. There is no decapitated discipleship. Well, I'm just with the head. I don't need the body. It doesn't work that way, right? There's an organic connection. That's why Saul, when he's knocked off his horse, what does the Lord say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? If you know your Bible, it doesn't say that, does it? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because there is an organic connection between Christ and His church. And so we're not to think of our identity in isolation. But in community. Familiar passage, flip over to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, on the centrality of the local church and the plan of God. I mentioned Ephesians 1:10 as the thesis verse that God is uniting all things in Christ. 3.10 tells us a little bit more detail about that. Ephesians 3.8. to me though on the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places this was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the principalities and the powers have been put on notice. God's going to do to the whole world what He's done for those who are in Christ, what He's done for Jews and Gentiles. He's going to unite them as one. The local church is to be the focal point for displaying God's wisdom and glory to the world. God's purpose is for the ages. He says in verse 11, this was His eternal plan. The church was God's plan A. It's at the center of His plan. It's the apple of God's eye, and it should be the apple of ours too. Through a community of Jews and Gentiles filled with the Spirit united in Christ, God shows His manifold wisdom. His wisdom and its rich variety. His multifaceted wisdom. And so the church is our corporate identity. And so I want us to consider the nature of the church and specifically four marks of the church from Jeremiah chapter 31. And the main point I want us to take away is That the church is a believing people. In other words, a regenerate community. So first Mark, the church is the community of the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and 32. The word of the Lord says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband declares the Lord." So here's Jeremiah speaking of a new covenant. If you're familiar with the story, covenants are one of the main themes of Scripture. In many ways, it's like the backbone of the narrative, the plot structure of the Bibles around covenants. It starts with creation. Then we have the covenant with Noah. It's very, very similar to promise. Then we have the covenant with Abraham, that God would bless Abraham and his family and through him bless all the nations. Then we have the covenant with Moses, what Paul calls the old covenant. Then the Davidic covenant that he would have a son and a kingdom that would last forever, and things were still not right with Israel, right? And so the prophets begin to promise this new covenant. This is the most famous and classic passage right here in Jeremiah chapter 31. God's going to fix the problem. Something's broken, Israel, and God's got the solution. Did you notice God's initiative? We're going to see his initiative here seven times. He's going to say, I will, I will, I will. And he says that this is a new covenant for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But if we had been reading Jeremiah earlier in chapter 4 and in chapter 12, he's already talked about the fact that nations, Gentiles, pagans, would be included within this covenant community. And of course, this covenant is built on the covenant with Abraham that says all the nations of the world would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. So this new covenant is for the church. Hebrews 8 quotes this whole passage. The longest quotation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hebrews 8 quoting Jeremiah 31. And he says it's for the church. This is what we celebrate every time we celebrate communion. So the church is God's new covenant people. In this sense, the church is new in the plan of God. God, of course, reveals himself over time. The Bible didn't just fall out of the sky like complete. No, God reveals himself progressively over time. And this new covenant is the culmination. It's the fulfillment of all the previous covenants. And the church then, the birthday of the church, comes at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And here the prophet says, this new covenant that will come, it's not like the old covenant. In many ways, the Bible is structured around two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. Even our very Bibles reflect this with an Old Testament and a New Testament. Testamentum is a Latin translation from the Hebrew, Berit, covenant, old covenant, new covenant. And he says, this new covenant will be different. It will be effective. Look again at verses 31 and 32. Make a new covenant, verse 32. Not like the old covenant. Why? They broke it. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The new covenant is going to be different in that it's going to work. It's going to be effective. It won't be broken. Again, in Hebrews chapter 8, before he quotes this, he says this in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need, no occasion to look for a second covenant. And so the new covenant has replaced the old covenant. It's made the old covenant obsolete. Its expiration date has passed. And when something's expiration date has passed, it's not good. In fact it can be harmful. I've mentioned that I have five kids. Now my youngest is six. But it felt like we were in, in that diaper stage for a decade. and that sippy cup stage for a decade. We'd often have sippy cups with milk in them, you know, it was spill proof, which they were never spill proof. And they would, a kid would inevitably drop it under like the seat in the van or something like that. And we wouldn't notice it, you know, until three weeks later. And you find that cup, you don't even open it. You just you just toss it. Well, the expiration date on the milk has passed. Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant which replaces the old covenants. And so we don't go back to the old. What it pointed forward to has come. The candle becomes pointless once the sun has arisen. It's an image that John Chrysostom writing in the 400s, his commentary in Galatians, he says the law, speaking of the old covenant, the law then as it was our tutor and we were kept shut up under it is not the adversary, but the fellow worker of grace. But if when grace has come, it continues to hold us down, it becomes an adversary. For if it confines those who ought to go forward to grace, then it's the destruction of our salvation. If a candle which gave light by night kept us, when it became day from the sun, it would not only benefit, it would injure us. And so does the law. If it stands between us and greater benefits. So the new covenant has come and the church is the community of the new covenant. This is for us, friends. That's the first mark. Second mark is that this community of the new covenant is a regenerate community. Been regenerated. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the church then consists of those who've been born again. Those who've been regenerated. A people who've been changed from the inside out. The the demand of God is no longer just external, but now God writes his law on the heart. This is part of the newness of the new covenants. That was why the Old Covenant didn't work, as a friend of mine puts it. The Old Covenant should have had a sticker, a warning label on the outside of it that said, batteries not included. It could tell them what to do, but it gave them no power to obey. It's like you open up that that RC, remote control car for Christmas, and there's no batteries. You pull the trigger, And the thing just stands still. That was the old covenant people of God. They needed change from the inside out. That's why the Bible calls them stiff-necked, as stiff as that golden calf, or hard-hearted. They were rebellious. Remember right from the start, I mean, do you think about this? Can you imagine this? Imagine two people get married. They go off on their honeymoon. And on the first night of their honeymoon, the husband slips out and goes and sleeps with another woman in another room. Adultery on the wedding night. It's exactly what we have with Old Covenant Israel. Moses isn't even down from the mountain yet with the law, and they're down there giving credit to a false god. Adultery on the wedding night. Right after the ratification of the Old Covenant. They broke it. They were hard-hearted. We saw that in session one, but let's look at it again. Flip back in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 24. Jeremiah 7.24, they did not obey or incline their ear. But they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And they went backward, not forward. We saw they were uncircumcised in hearts, right? The heart was pictured as this inner entity surrounded by this hard outer core that makes it unable and unwilling to respond. And so in Jeremiah 4.4, God commands them to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. Jeremiah 9, they were merely circumcised in flesh. That's why one of the first New Covenant sermons, Acts 7, Stephen, his conclusion is you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. That was their problem. Here in Jeremiah, he uses the metaphor of the law written on the heart. But even before that, we saw that New Covenant promise in Deuteronomy 30, Verse 6, that God would circumcise their hearts. That's the promise that's being fulfilled here. Moses was prophesying about the new covenant way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And so that's why he can tell the Philippian church, we are the circumcision. That's why in Romans chapter 2, he can tell those Christians in Rome that circumcision is no longer outward and physical in the new covenant. It's now a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. And I mentioned that Ezekiel uses the imagery of a stony heart being replaced. What they needed was inward transformation. What they needed was the law, not outside of them, but inside of them. Ezekiel promises this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. New birth, regeneration, new covenants, new hearts by water and the Spirit. I think this is what Jesus was referring to in John chapter 3 when He's talking to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and says, you don't know about this promise of being born again by water and Spirit? I'm talking about Ezekiel 36. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul speaks of the church as a letter written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Literally, fleshly hearts, alluding to Ezekiel. Two different means and two different spheres. Not ink, but the spirit. Not stones, but hearts. Change from the inside out. And then 2 Corinthians 3 says the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. It gives life. It regenerates. That's what the spirit brings. The letter kills. In fact, it did, right? Do you remember how God responded to the golden calf incident in Exodus 32? 3,000 people were judged. You know what happens when Peter preaches that New Covenant Pentecost sermon? 3,000 people are given life. The letter kills and the Spirit gives life. And so many of these prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, they, they promised coming inward transformation. That's what they needed. They needed the batteries included. And so Isaiah 32, 15 and 44, 3 and Joel 2, promised the outpouring of the Spirit that would change them. They needed new hearts, and one of the main gifts of the new covenant is exactly that. New hearts. Change from the inside out. Circumcision of the hearts. Stony hearts replaced with hearts of flesh. And so when we believe in Jesus, this happens. When we believe in Jesus, we're filled with the Spirit. The church is the regenerates, new covenant people of God. And don't miss this. Jeremiah promises that this inward transformation, this regeneration, would happen to every member of the New Covenant community. All members of this New Covenant are indwelt by the Spirit of God. It's a regenerate community. Mark number three, very much related, is that this church is a believing community. It's a regenerate community and therefore it is a believing community. Look again at Jeremiah 31, verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know Me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So in this New Covenant community, the church, all will know the Lord. This is one of the main ways that the New Covenant community is different from the Old Covenant community. The Old Covenant Israel was a mixed community. Some were believers, some were unbelievers. All of them received the sign of the covenant, though. But only a remnant actually believed. Only a remnant were actually faithful. There was a David, sure. Then there's a bunch of Ahabs. There was a Josiah, but then a majority of unfaithful kings. The story of Israel really is the story of idolatry. It's the story of unfaithfulness. But Jeremiah is saying that's going to change. One day when the new covenant comes, that's going to change. In the new covenant, all are going to know the Lord. In the new covenant, the remnant will actually be the whole. Then they shall all know me, he says. And you won't need someone to teach you. He's not saying that we won't need any teachers in the new covenant. That would contradict a whole lot of other passages. This teaching that's mentioned here is not just transferring of information. He's talking about a time where there will be no need for any other mediators, no more priests. Why? Because we'll all be priests. We will all know the Lord. We will all have access, all have personal knowledge of God. Each member will know God personally, no more mediated knowledge of God. But now all will have access because there will only be one mediator. In other words, it'll be a whole new structure. The whole nature of the community will change and there will be a new structure, which is why he begins this prophecy with this little proverb in verse 29. He says, in those days, they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. So there'll no longer be a situation where these fallen mediators get in the way because our mediator will be sinless. No more fallen kings and priests, because Jesus is our king and our priest and our mediator. So this is our corporate identity. Community of the new covenant, regenerate, believing. We now follow the Lord, yes, but we follow the Lord together as a regenerate community. The new covenant is new. And this is why one of many reasons why we do membership the way we do in our circles. This is why in some ways we kind of make it hard to join our churches. This is why we have often multi-hour or even multi-week classes. This is why we actually interview people before they can become members. Because we're trying to maintain a regenerate church membership. Because in the church, all know the Lord. And maybe that term, regenerate church membership, is new to you. But Baptists have used it and practiced it for hundreds of years. As I was trying to bring regenerate church membership and church discipline to bear at Southside, I would often tell them, I realize you've never heard of this, but just trust me. I am your great-great-Baptist grandfather from the 1800s. This is not new at all, actually. It's very old. We've just strayed from our biblical and historic practice. Listen to this early Baptist statement of faith. It's called the Somerset Confession, 1656 says this, In admitting of members into the church of Christ, it's the duty of the church and ministers whom it concerns in faithfulness to God that they be careful that they receive none but such as do make forth the evident demonstration of the new birth and the work of faith with power. In the mid-1600s, Baptists were saying, we must only allow believers into the church because it's a regenerate community. In a meeting in the early 1900s called the Baptist World Alliance, one of the leaders said this, the principle of a regenerated church membership more than anything else marks our distinctiveness in the Christian world today. So this is what makes Baptists differently. You know, every tradition has its strengths and weaknesses. Historically, one of our strengths as Baptists is the local church. It's membership, which we would say is really nothing more than the Christian life. It's been called the cardinal point of the Baptist view of the church. And Baptists have often cooperated together, much like we're doing here today. And the oldest Baptist association in the United States was the Charleston Baptist Association. It was 1743, and they wrote up this summary of church discipline so that they would all be on the same page. And they would, all, the, all the churches of this association would understand its importance. And they said that when churches allow unconverted people to crowd into them, they, quote, Make the Church of Christ a harlot. They took it very seriously. And sadly, too many churches today have lost meaningful membership, if they practice it at all. On any given Sunday in the United States, two-thirds, 66% of the members of Baptist churches are missing on Sunday mornings, yet their name is on a roll. Except for Christmas and Easter, right? Baptist mice. Well, why is that? Well, it's because churches and their leaders have stopped practicing meaningful membership. They've stopped, or maybe they've never started practicing biblical church discipline, even though it is crystal clear in the New Testament. Jesus only used the word church twice, Ecclesia, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, in the context of him telling his church how to handle unrepentant sin in the congregation. Is he the Lord of the church or is he not? In my own context, we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. We're loosely associated for now. And when you look at their numbers, there's something like 13 million on membership rolls. You know what the average attendance is in terms of the whole convention? Average attendance on a Sunday morning is 3 million. Where are these 10 million people whose names are on membership rolls in Southern Baptist churches? So friends, the need in the church, the need in the community, the need in the culture are strong, healthy churches, and a key is regaining or maintaining meaningful church membership to ensure ensure a regenerate community, a church of believers, of saints, of holy ones, only believers who are fully forgiven of their sins. And there must be this clear distinction between the church and the world. What often want, What often church leaders want to do is just to bring that wall down between the church and the world. But in the Bible, you never see that. The wall stays high and must stay high. There must be a clear distinction between the church and the world. And Mac, Mac Stiles will often say, we, want to, we try to reach the world and try to reach over so hard that we often just fall into the world and we blur the distinction. And we're no longer salt and light, right? That was what Jesus is calling the Sermon on the Mount, is that we're a city set on a hill. We're distinct. We are a contrast society, a countercultural people. And so having and practicing meaningful membership and discipline lines up with this promise, it, about the nature and the structure of the community of the new covenant. All will know the Lord. And that means, friends, that our job is to be members of a local church, share the gospel, and be faithful. Really, what membership is, it's just committed love. The way that we talk about it in Abilene is membership is just helping one another finish well. At the end of the day, we talk a lot about death at Southside, the end of the day, trying to help each other finish well. To die a good death. How can I die a good death? Be a, be a meaningful church member and care about the spiritual growth of one another. Help one another follow the Lord. Build a culture of discipleship. We just define discipleship as, as following Jesus and helping others follow Jesus. Moving them from wherever they are. There's a spectrum. Maybe they don't know, yet know the Lord. Maybe they're a new believer. Maybe they've been walking with the Lord. But our job is to move them from wherever they are on that spectrum to where Jesus wants them. Where does Jesus want them? Submitting every area of their lives to His Lordship. This is what we're called to do. It's the Christian life. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. Hopefully another familiar passage. We were just there in Ephesians 4:22, but we'll start a little bit earlier. Start at verse 7. The grace was given to each one of us. That's every member, every member ministry. Every member has a gift that is to be used to edify one another according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then he talks about Christ being descended and then ascended on high. Look at verse 11. The victorious ascendant Christ then gives gifts to his church. He doesn't leave his church to fend for itself, but he gives leaders, apostles and prophets. Those were foundational gifts, evangelists, shepherd teachers, what's normally called elders. What's, what's the point of the, the gifts here? Verse 12, to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry. At the end of the day, the elders actually don't do the work of ministry. They equip the saints to do the work of ministry. What is the work of ministry? Building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children, so that it builds itself up in love. That's that's meaningful membership. To so believe in community, and we help each other keep believing by how? Seeking to edify, seeking to build up, by encouraging one another with the Word. And so you can go from here, and you can go from tomorrow's service at lunch, and you can use that Word to build one another up. The church will not mature if each part is not doing its job and speaking the Word prayerfully to one another so I would just ask, do you care about the spiritual renewal of your fellow members? Do you care about their growth? Maybe you don't. You know what the first step is? It's just pray. You know what? I don't care. I don't really care. Pray that God would change your heart. Pray that God would stir your affections. And then start acting like it. Just start doing good to one another and often your heart will follow. A hallmark of Christian maturity is when you care about the spiritual growth of fellow members. Selflessness. Our identity at the end of the day is found in self-forgetfulness, right? 2 Corinthians 5.15, Jesus died so that we would no longer live for ourselves but for Him. And to live for Him is to live for the church, that organic connection. Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, I've been crucified, the life I live, I live by faith. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 13, we've been set free. It's The whole point of Galatians is freedom, right? For freedom, you've been set free, 5.1, 5-1. 5.13. You've been set free, brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, in love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's the identity. What is the identity? It's not about self. In fact, so much is, is freedom, freedom, freedom for the self. I'm free for me. I'm free from all external constraints so that I can be me and then express me. That's the worldview of expressive individualism. It's the exact opposite of what we find in the New Testament. What does it say right here? Yes, you're free. 5.13, Galatians 5.13, you're free, but don't use your freedom for you. Your freedom's not for you. Rather, in love, serve one another. And it's actually even stronger than that because there's two different words for serve. There's one where we get diakonos for servant or deacon. There's one doulos for slave. That's what the word is here in 5.13. It is slavery. You're free. What do you use your freedom for? To become slaves of one another in love. Servants voluntarily give their time. Slaves are owned by somebody. What do Christians use their freedom for? Giving of self for the good of others. What Philippians 2 says, this is the mind of Christ, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in love, consider others better than yourselves. Put their interest before yours. And so it's a believing community. And what we are called to do then is to keep it believing. And so we tell each other, keep on believing. Come with me. Press on. Let's finish well. Fourth mark. The church is fully forgiven. Look again at Jeremiah 31, verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In the New Covenant, God forgives us. He remembers our sin no more. Again, maybe if you don't know the Lord yet, this, this is your greatest need. Your greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. And the greatest gift of the Gospel is that you can have it through faith in Christ. We've all sinned in word, thought, actions. We've separated ourselves from God because He's holy. God doesn't grade on a curve. God is holy. He punishes all sin, either on our own head or on Christ. The cross was the great exchange. Our sins for His righteousness. Philippians 3.9 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our sins are counted as his even though he had no sin and his righteousness is counted as ours even though we're not righteous. That's the gospel to be received by faith. That's what makes the good news good. You can't earn it, but it's given. As we're talking about identity, you know that you need to change, and the news that you hear is you can't change yourself. That was my testimony. I thought I would clean myself up. Turns out you can't. You don't need a facelift. You need heart surgery, and you can't change your own heart, right? Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also, can you do good who are accustomed to do evil? No, you can't, but Christ can. So when we trust in Christ, we're fully forgiven. You know, as Jeremiah is writing this, during this prophecy, there was the sacrificial system. And so they would have to slaughter animals. There was a yearly annual reminder that you're still a sinner in need of forgiveness. And a yearly reminder of the inadequacy of animal sacrifice to atone for sin. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But in the New Covenant, Jeremiah says, God will remember your sins no more. It's not a case of divine amnesia. The idea is that in this future New Covenant, there will need no action need to be taken against sin because it will have been taken care of through the cross. Sin has been once for all dealt with. That's why we sing, full atonement can it be. Jesus paid it all. It is finished. And again, this is why we celebrate communion. Regularly. We remind ourselves of this reality. Communion is our new covenant meal. It's a reminder that our sins have been forgiven. It's a reminder of the truth of Psalm 103, 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. And so the hard part about our identity is we forget it. Again, which is why we meet weekly and throughout the week. We have to preach the gospel regularly. We have to hear the gospel because we have identity amnesia. We have forgotten that we've been cleansed. We forget who we are. The world wants you to redefine the self. The devil wants us to forget our identity. That's one of the things he wants us to do. That's one of his tactics. You see it in the gospels. You remember when Jesus is baptized? See it in the gospel stories where Jesus is baptized the Spirit dwells upon him. what does the Father say? This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Matthew chapter 3 at the very end. Bad chapter break. They didn't exist, right? Right after that, right after he's baptized, hair still wet, goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil. And do you remember what the devil says more than once? The Father just said, This is my beloved Son. Here's an affirmation of his identity. And the devil wants to say, If you are the Son of God. If you are, and that's the same tactic that he will take with you. He wants you to doubt your identity. And so you've got to hear the gospel and preach it to yourself and remind yourself. Yes, indeed, I am a son of God, not by performance, but by faith. We preach the gospel to ourselves daily. And what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves of our identity. We're reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ. When Satan tempts me to despair. And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Is that how you preach the gospel when Satan tempts you? Because he will, when he tempts you to despair, when he tempts you to question your identity, what do you say? Do you look to Christ? My favorite Luther quotes is very similar to this, and he talks about when the devil comes in and tells us that we deserve death and hell, we ought to say, what of it? (laughs) You're right, you're right. See, that's the problem when the devil accuses us. Often those accusations are true, because we do fall short. And thought, word, and deed. And so when the Satan, when the devil comes in and tempts us to despair, when the devil comes in and says, you know what? You deserve death and hell. We say, what of it? You're right, I do. But you're only preaching the first half of the gospel. Let's finish. Let's sing the refrain, and that is that Jesus saves. I know one who has made an end to my sin, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because of the new covenant work of Christ, there's no condemnation. Just, righteous. It is finished. Fully forgiven. Conscience is plans the new covenant brings inward transformation and full and final forgiveness of sins it solves our objective problem and that is sin and its penalty and its power but it also solves the subjective problem it's it's very presence so objective and subjective the twin gifts of the new covenant are full and final forgiveness of sins and the transformation of the human heart it's the double grace Calvin called it the duplex gratia both found in union with Christ again, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. We have both in the new covenant. Friends, we are the church. We are the community of the new covenant. We are a regenerate people. We are a believing people. We are a fully forgiven people. This is our corporate identity. Let's pray together. Father, what a gift. What a gift You've given us. We're thankful to live on this side of redemptive history to be able to look back on this promise and all Your promises and see how You've made good on them in Christ. And You share His benefits with us by union with Him. I pray that we would do the hard work of fighting sin and reminding ourselves who we are appropriating and reappropriating our justification and living in light of it. Give us the grace to pursue You and to know You and to turn from sin. And I pray that we would be resolved afresh to commit ourselves to Your people, the the Bride of Christ, the Body of Christ, that You'd give us love and care and burden to help one another finish well, that we might be concerned with finishing well and helping others die a good death. Would you help us to do that through this body of sinful people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, whom you've united in Christ to show your power and your glory and your wisdom to the principalities and powers. Thank you for including us. We pray it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.